Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today, we're looking at China's rapid and massive urbanization and what it means for the global climate. By 2030, a billion humans, or about one in eight people in the world, will live in a Chinese city. Their lifestyles and carbon footprint will have a major impact on efforts to reduce greenhouse gases that are destabilizing the Earth's operating system. Over the next hour, we will look at how China is growing its cities. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us two experts. Zhang Lin is senior vice president at the Energy Foundation and chairman of the China Sustainable Energy Program. Ellen Liu is director of urban design and planning at the architectural firm Skidmore, Owings and Merrill. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you both for coming. Great to have you here.、Uh, let's start first by asking you how you came to、uh, the field of sustainable planning and、uh, sustainable urbanism. Ellen Liu, let's start with you. Well,、uh, sustainable planning is kind of a new terminology, but、right. in terms of doing it, in terms of conserving resources, you know, promoting uh, good uh, use of、um, energy and water has always been in the sort of urban design planning practice. So. Having the idea to talk about sustainability is really a great way to kind of organize it and sort of formalize it and sort of make the、uh, different professions to work together in a more deliberate manner. So, though, would you say that the urgency or the the, the relevance、uh, of sort of resource use is is、uh, up recently because of concerns about climate change and water scarcity? Yes, yes,、okay. and it also、uh, sort of. Heightens the awareness that we have to do something in a more responsible way. Certainly, it's true. It's more uh, uh, it's a bigger priority on the client side or the ten- tenant side these days. Zhang Lin, let me ask you how you came to this field, brought, now defined as sustainable urbanism, and thinking about cities in a really intensive resource、uh, conservation kind of way. Well, thank you, Greg. I'm really pleased to be here.、Uh, I came to this field in a very long, routed way. Uh, I've, uh, I've been interested in population and resource issues、uh, ever since the 80s,、uh, looking at the traditional, you know, Club Rome debate, Mosses versus Rose, etc., and it's been a fascinating question ever since.、Uh, I came to this f- field of urban design certainly only about、uh, six, seven years ago、uh, when I joined the Energy Foundation, which is a non-profit. 
based in San Francisco, but have a very uh, extensive practice in China. Uh, we're one of the largest NGOs operating in China. Um, about seven, eight years ago, we started a partnership with Healy Foundation to look at urban design issues. How, how do you address the massive urbanization challenge in China? And simply put, you know, over the next 20 years, there are roughly 350 million people who are moving from countryside to cities in China. And that's equivalent to the entire U.S. population uh, that has moved to cities. So how do you design cities in a way that's both environmentally friendly but also li- livable to people? Uh, it's, a, it's a huge challenge. And that has a, uh, so 350 people, million people moving from the countryside to cities in China. That's just, just trying to absorb and, and understand that. What's at stake in terms of global cl- carbon and climate for China's urbanization? What are the stakes if they get it right or, well, if they do it in a low carbon way versus the way we did it? Well, put this way, uh, on per capita basis, uh, every Chinese citizens use one-tenth the energy average American use. So if they don't do the way right and follow our footstep into a sort of urban sprawl and very high consumption patterns, then there's probably not very easy way for us to get out of the, the trap for towards uh, global warming. Um, so I think this is actually a very critical challenge. Most of consumption will happen in, in cities. So whether they get a city right, it's essential to China to be on a low emission growth pattern, but also true for the world as well. Yeah, our pattern has been grow now, clean up later. And so uh, what is, let's look at some of the bright spots and, and where China is trying to wrap, grapple with this issue and grow in a low carbon way. So what, what are some of the things that are happening China, in China right now? Uh, uh, Ellen Liu, let's, let's ask you in terms of where the low carbon development is happening. Where, where are the leading spots, the bright spots right now? I think what I have observed, which was really special, is, you know, since the financial tsunami, is the Chinese government spends a lot of money in building up their transit infrastructure. So cities and, you know, different cities racing to Beijing and trying to get that piece of fund so that they can build their subway, light rail, and now they're big into building BRTs. And this Just, is uh, bus rapid bus transit. Bus rapid transit, okay. that's right. And this is the case in the first tier cities like Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, as well as second and third tier cities. And so I think that's like one of the best things that they have done. But what's the connection with the financial tsunami and subways? Is that was it a way to stimulate the economy? It wasn't really because of carbon. It was it was because of a way to uh, get people to work and stimulate the economy. Is that right? Right. But instead of building more freeways, they built subways and light rail. Okay. which is hugely different from ours how many years ago. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I went to Shanghai in 2006. There was one or two subway lines. I went back in 2010 for the World Expo. There was 11 subway lines all over the place, way out into the suburbs. It would take 100 or 200 years to do something like that in the Bay Area. They did it very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about that uh, transportation infrastructure, what that means for um, China's carbon footprint. Jianglin, you know, is there, do you agree that, that that transportation infrastructure is, is a key part? Definitely. I'm very glad Ellen brought up the BRT issue, bus rapid transit. This is actually a, a, a technology we helped champion China ever since the early 2000. Uh, in fact, in 2005, 
we host a very large conference for leading mayors in China to introduce the BRD concept in China. Why don't you tell us what that concept is briefly for people who aren't familiar? Which is essentially operating bus as a subway, but on the ground. Everything else operating in the same principle as a bus. It's a very high quality, high capacity, and fast. There's a dedicated lane, you pre-board. So everything works as a subway, but you don't have to dig a hole on the ground. So it costs like 5 to 10% as a subway, and it's much easier to deploy. This is a technology that invented in South America. You know, it was not came out of America. You know, we, in fact, for many years, we hired a group of Brazilian uh, engineers to de- 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 deploy in China, going to different cities to help people to build BRT lines. In fact, the first BRT corridor in Beijing was with our uh, assistance in terms of design uh, in 2005. And, when in, uh, and there's actually quite a few cities now that have BRT corridors and BRT networks. Uh, one of our partner institutions that built one of the largest BRT in Asia, in Guangzhou, which is operating uh, for two or three years now. Um, I think the one of the bright spot uh, in terms of transit infrastructure is also high-speed rails, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, in the last five to six years, China came out of nowhere and built the largest high-speed rail network in the world. Um, so that's a tremendous uh, benefit thinking about laying down the infrastructure for the future because the city, to build a city in terms of uh, have a minimal impact on climate, you really need to build infrastructure right. And high-speed rails, public transit are one of those fundamental structures you have to build to allow people to practice a low-carbon style. Otherwise, you're locked into much higher uh, carbon uh, density in terms of lifestyle. The other bright spot, I mean, there's other things we can talk about later, but the other bright spot is really the move towards uh, clean energy sources in China. There's a massive amount of investment going to renewables. Uh, since 2005, China has become the largest renewable market in the world, both in terms of deploying wind and solar, but also manufacturing them. So they're actually putting a lot of low-carbon infrastructure in terms of power plants in the ground as well. But many people say China was building, what, the equivalent of a coal-fired power plant a week. Is that still true, that they're doing lots of clean energy, they're also doing lots of dirty energy? It is still true. Yeah, I think as of last year, that's still on the same pace. Uh, but you see the balance is shifting, right? In, in, in used to be the most investment going into a fossil fuel uh, power plant. Now, close to half, maybe a third, at least a third of investment in power plants are going to cleaner sources. So you see the balance are changing quite dramatically over the last few years. Part of the challenge of, of uh, there's still more coal plant being, being built because there's still very high amount of growth in China. So to, to, to support the growth, you need power. And that's one of the critical challenges that's facing China at the and, moment. And like a lot of countries, they also keep the cost of energy low. The United States doesn't want the cost of energy to rise. And energy in China, partly because of income considerations and the poverty, they're keeping the energy really low. So is that going to be compatible with being low carbon while continuing to subsidize fossil fuels? John Lee? Or Ellen? Well, I'm glad you raised that question. I think it's one of the critical choices both countries have to make, right? Uh, I think a higher energy price would, would you know, pricing into the impact on the environment. The fossil energy usage. So be, I think we're supporting, uh, we're, good, we're for a higher price for energy and, and carbon. Um, but it might be actually a misperception that energy price in China is lower. 
in, in terms of electricity and things on par with the U.S., natural gas is actually several times more expensive. So energy price is not lower anymore in China. So, you know, this is not a, quite true anymore. I think there is a, a little bit of kind of relative sense. We know that um, China, even, um, most energy use is in industrial sector, but as we don't build factories, but as we were promoting different kind of sustainable kind of energy conservation approaches, what we face the challenge is the pricing for industrial buildings are lower, so much lower that it's, and also for housing. So it's very hard to make it pencil out that you want to invest in energy conservation kind of materials or double pane windows or other things just because they're priced lower comparing to commercial buildings, which is much easier because they're maybe comparing to the U.S. or other world in terms of economic indexes. But relatively, that makes it harder to persuade developers to, to go that route. So, so there's some, some distortions in the marketplace because the government has decided they want to promote job, they want jobs, they want to keep those people employed so they can stay in power, first and foremost. Right. Uh, that means building factories and getting jobs going, so there's, there's distortions. Uh, but are we seeing more market pricing, that the, the value starts to uh, reflect the true cost of things? Because in the United States, we talk about life cycle analysis and the cost of burning fossil fuels should reflect the real cost, mm-hmm. right? The price we pay at the pump is not the real cost. To protect the uh, uh, the supply lines and the, and the pollution, et cetera, is that thinking at all uh, starting to take hold in China about the the total cost and the actual price people pay? There's a very active debate, you know, and, you, and most of the audience is probably aware of the recent spate of air pollution incidents in China right. across much of China, mm-hmm. right? So that's really putting pollution and cost of pollution in the spotlight of public deba- debate. Uh, so people actually are really aware the consequence of pollution, and are thinking about how to you know, deal with that. There was a, an amazing vote at the National People's Congress where actually a great number of people actually uh, dissented uh, from a particular plank, which was a quite a sh- significant show of, uh, within that system, of, uh, of uh, discontent in the political process, and it was largely environmental-driven, where the, 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 the rankings of the air pollution in Beijing is way off the World Health Organization chart. So what does that mean, Zhang Lin, in terms of the sort of environmentalism bubbling up in, within the political process? Well, the vote you're referring to, the NPC vote, I think it was like 30 per- percent people. National People's Congress. Right. Uh, vote against the, the slate of uh, delegates who are running the environmental committee. Is that what you're yes, referring to? Yes. Yeah, that's a very strong signal of a, uh, internal debate about direction people should take. Um, people are very concerned about it, both in terms at the grassroots citizen level. I think you, you hear a lot of discussions on the Internet from regular people about pollution and source pollution and, and it's, you know, where it's come from. And there's much greater understanding. Even within government circles, there's much more active discussion on how to deal with that. I mean, there was actually an article yesterday in the New York Times talking about the internal differences between different ministries, right? The environment ministry want to push for clean fuel, tighter emission standards. On the other side, the oil company are resisting the change because, you know, getting the clean air depends on getting clean uh, fuels so the car can, can reduce the pollution uh, associated with the cars. So there's a lot of actually um, internal differences now that's being publicly debated. I think it's a very healthy sign. People are recognizing the problem. People are putting the different opinion on the table. They are discussing what are the right solutions to that. 
And we know the Chinese Environmental Protection Agency, which is somewhat modeled after the U.S., uh, is not as powerful as some of those other ministries that generate lots of money for the government, right? So the, 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 the you know, the fossil fuel extraction, uh, money-making industries have a lot more muscle in the economy than the environmentalists. But it sounds like you're saying that's starting to change, the balance is starting to change a little bit. Um, how much of that is due to a middle class that's starting to emerge in China? People who uh, buy uh, condos in the buildings that, that Ellen builds or, or others, right, that they <laughs> that they now have property protect. They have a little bit of uh, some political clout as well as uh, they have a decent job and, and uh, so they can, to the extent environmentalism is a luxury, they can start to worry about those things. Ellen? Yeah. I, I definitely think that when you are hungry, you just worry about your next meal and make money. And now, I won't say everybody, but generally they're doing a lot better. So they're a lot more kind of conscious about environment. But also the recent spate of those issues. I know uh, my Chinese friends tells me I actually have a have a, um, a an app here that shows the Beijing government's published air quality and then the U.S. consulate's quality. It's actually the two numbers are different, especially in those bad days. And this was uh, told to me from my uh, Chinese friends. They say, look, you should download this and see. The U.S. So, number is higher? Yes, the pollutant, because so we the, measure to a much smaller particulate uh, versus the Chinese standard. And so the, there's a bias in the Chinese government to not maybe not say how bad it is, right, which is true yeah, in a lot of government yeah, agencies. Yeah. And that, that meter also partly determines the hardship pay that people who work in the embassy get. Um, uh, so it's, it's a very it's a very closely uh, cl- closely watched the self-reinforcing biases you are saying. Well, maybe yeah, there you go. So there's a bias in that direction. The U.S. Uh, can make it worse so they can get paid more um, <laughs> diplomats. Uh, but it is true, and I think it was uh, Ambassador Huntsman who had that in, installed when when he was there. Uh, let's look at some of uh, let's talk about Guangzhou and, and what's happening down there as one of the really large areas where southern city, sort of the, the factory of the world down there. Ellen, tell us what they're doing to sort of plan at a large scale for a more uh, climate smart kind of uh, growth. Yeah, this was very interesting. Uh, we were we worked on a project uh, in the city of Guangzhou on the waterfront. The area is about one-third the size of San Francisco, so it's a very large area. But comparing to Guangzhou, that's only one of the ten projects that the mayor is working on. It all started with uh, the mayor coming to Stanford for his public administration training, his executive training for uh, two weeks, and got involved and invited us to bring what we are doing, the sustainable integrated approach to city planning. Mm-hmm. So we were invited to work on a particular plan that they had planned two, three times, and they were not pleased with what they had. So we went in and worked on it. And um, this was uh, very special because before that, our engagement, typically they just invite you American designers or planners they have their own engineers. They have all the other consultants. We are, we're just supposed to make it look good um, and make money. But this time he actually they entertained the idea that we bring in different professionals. So we brought water experts, uh, transportation experts, sort of working with our local counterparts together to come out with an integrated approach to planning. So it was uh, it was very exciting. It's not an easy thing, but it's very exciting because we got – People in the room, one of my colleagues here, she was there too. We were in this windowless room, charretting, looking at transportation, what is the best way to do, um, toxic remediation, landscape, and all these elements. And then the planning director come and check up on us. What are you guys doing <laughs> on the weekend? And it was very excited to see that 
So we have this integrated approach. What, what's there now? What, what's is it, is it going to be raised? There's a lot of old buildings in Guangzhou. Stuff's going to be just plowed down and start from scratch. Oh, good. So, city of Guangzhou started somewhere. It, it's it's on the Pearl River, and over the last, I guess, 20 years, it's been growing to the east and east. They built this Pearl River new town and built more. And the part that we worked on is just south of the old city. So it has um, quite a number of area that's developed, but it's you know the suburbs the edge cities, but it also has the earliest industrial ports of China, which is all along the river. So it's a very rich area, and then it has farm land, so it's kind of a mixed area, has a lot of small industries in the area. So it's kind of redeveloping, uh, not quite a lot of wholesale redevelopment in the area. And one of the things that's interesting about this area is that they're actually planning for sea level rise and for coming severe weather. So tell us how that's actually built in to uh, the plan in a way that, that other places haven't yet. So the sea level rise issue was, you know, one of our, actually San Francisco consultant who identified, sort of illustrated this drawing that, you know, this area 7,500 years ago used to be below water. And now here and with sea level rise, even a meter, how much area will be flooded in the future and we developed different ideas to how to address the area. You know, some infill areas, you have to build canals to move the water away. Some very large redevelopment area, we can talk about raising the land. Industrial historical rounds, you have to build flood walls and other things to do. So sort of developing different ways to um, prepare themselves for uh, flood control. And sea level rise. But I would say that of all these sustainable measures, that was probably the hardest one to go through. Because, um, well, it was interesting. In, a, in an earlier conversation, we talked about sea level rise. They said, eh, we don't have that problem. A hundred years from now, it's my grandchildren's problem. But then there are some parts of the site, they flood every year. It is there. It's happening every year. So that sort of got some attention. But the thing is, the determination to do it, to work on a problem that's going to come slowly and, you know, it's the hardest one, I would say, of all the measures that we recommended. Because the hardest one to forget, to get people to recognize that it's a real problem that they have to deal with, it, that it's not something far away in time. Right. You've yeah. got to start doing now. You've got to start preparing for now. You have this incredible opportunity that you're rebuilding this thing. Let's set the framework right. How many other cities in, in China are thinking about adaptation? Like a lot of places, the cities are built on the water, Shanghai, etc. Just think of what's happened in Pudong, the eastern part of Shanghai recently. Tremendous, uh, huge office towers going in there. Any thought about sea level rise? I think they have, many cities has built extensive flood walls. For instance, Shanghai is somewhere between 3 meters high, meaning about 10 feet, 10 to 12 feet high. So, when you are on the waterfront, you actually cannot see the river because you are behind the walls. And many cities, we work on a different part, they build a flood wall. But most of those heights are 100-year flood. They are not talking into consideration the sea level rise on top of that yet. I'm sure changes will come very fast, but they have right now dealing with the flood that they can you know, foresee, the 100-year flood or 100-year storm. Yeah, and those are coming it. more frequently as, yeah. as we've seen. Right. So, I mean, uh, you know, is adaptation part of the conversation? Or is it still focused on reducing carbon uh, pollution and, and solving that side of the equation? Well, I think different mayors have different challenges, right? On the, on the East Coast, of course, there's a, a, a rising awareness about that. 
but you know, China is vast. There are a lot of inland provinces and cities. These are not as under consciousness as well. And plus, I think there's a very different uh, issue at hand that people are dealing with. Uh, most cities are, are, are experiencing very rapid expansion of the city proper. And how do you restructure the new city, integrate a new town with the old town is a tremendous challenge. Uh, in, in some ways, we find um, we are racing against time uh, because people just don't wait until you figure out how to solve uh, a sustainable design for a 10 million metropolis in China, right? So people are building <clears throat> every day, and as we speak, you know, a thousand cities are being constructed at um, the same time. So we are, people are racing against time to make sure that best practices are adopted in those cities. And the one of the fundamental challenge is how you should reshape the city uh, in a way um, that it's going to fit our future need. I think the last com- uh, panel, there was a conversation about um, about whether finding growth is helpful at the moment and how to reshape the growth in a way that's the most uh, environmental f- friendly for, for us. Um, you know, in a way that we characterize the U.S. development pattern as uh, sort of low-density sprawl. Uh, for, for many of us, the pattern is equally bad in China. Uh, instead of low-density sprawl, it's a high-density sprawl. So Beijing is very typical, right? In the 80s, there's a second ring road, then there's a third ring road, then there's a first ring road, then the fifth ring road, now there's a sixth ring road, there's even more being planned. You can see the urban core just being, keep expanding without very much serious consideration of how do you restructure the city, how you want to expand. Right? So and that's actually one of the fundamental challenges we're dealing with with any particular city. You know, how do you reshape the growth in a way that you can achieve the kind of friendliness for urban residents, reduce transpa- uh, congestion and trans- transportation energy use, Etc. And one of the solutions to that, uh, McKinsey had a very extensive report on China calling for concentrated urbanization, 15 super cities with 25 million people. It's kind of hard to imagine more density in Chinese cities, but the alternative to high density sprawl is even greater density in the inner area. Is that right? Well, I, I, I have not read the report carefully. I can't comment on their concept. But I don't think that uh, density is soft is the solution. You need to have a much more nuanced understanding how you can uh, hold the people with um, with the features that make the city attractive for people to live. Right? To have 30-story to- towers across the city is not a solution for our future cities, the one we see in some areas, in China or Hong Kong, in New York. So... We find in our practice, uh, so traditionally our foundation mostly make grants to other institutions in China, but we actually have a, a affiliate design center in China and helping mayors design cities. In our practice in the last seven, eight years, we find that you can actually accommodate a lot of people uh, with a very differentiated density development. Right? So the, the focus really is really about re- changing your design focus to serve the need of people instead of build a city, instead of thinking about building a product. I think that that's part of the fallacies. Uh, how do you build a city that can hold the greatest number of people? You need to build a city that, that satisfies the need of the people and make it the most attractive 
And that's how you want to think of the cities. But can certainly understand how they get there with the migration that you've talked about. 300 million people expected. There's been 300 million people before them. It's like there's this great inflow of people. It's natural to think about, okay, we can big as big as tainers as possible to, to get all these people into. And that's how you end up with these 30-story towers uh, as far as the eye can see. Yeah. Well, in fact, we're finding in some areas there are zoning for too many people. There may not be even need for that many housing or uh, office space. So I think the density, greater density is not necessarily the better solution. Ellen Lu, you want to get in here? I think I totally agree with you um, in the sense that to design the city, you really need to design a livable city. I guess it's very hard for us to imagine a city of the kind of density that they have, but if they don't grow higher density, they run out of land. They're only about 12, 12% um Farmable land, you know, farmland in China, because they they have far less land that is ready. Uh, it's good, suitable for habitation. So we have to go higher density. But then, how do you make higher density livable? That's the challenge. And I want to take that sort of thirty-story towers, endless uh, sea of thirty-story towers. It's not livable. But it doesn't mean that we don't build higher. You may build sixty floors, fifty floors, four thirty floors, twenty floors. Create variety create hierarchy so that they don't have not one size, not one solution and repeated three million times. And that will just make it different. You know, concentrate where density needs to be. Um, how do you create uh, urban forms that allow those thriving uh, nodes that we would like to see? Yeah. Uh, it's harder to, to rebuild Oakland, but in China, they always have a lot of people in the center. So how do you make it livable and people want to enjoy the city and not want to drive somewhere, and there's so many design things that we can do to make high density livable. Let's pick up on the food part there, because you mentioned the, the shortage of uh, arable farmland in China, which is a real problem, big uh, net food importer. And Ellen Liu, there's actually quotas on converting farmland uh, to industrial uses, so they're trying to protect uh, the farmland that they have and actually moving uh, toward industrial scale agriculture at a time when the United States is going toward community farms, small in your backyard, local, organic. China's going the other direction towards large scale industrial because they think it's more efficient. Well, I think they were doing what our agriculture industry, or not really as ours, <laughs> had always been big, but many other Asian countries and developing countries has done. Uh, we worked on a project in an area south of Shanghai. The farm's productivity yield is, yield is low. Each farm is about 1.5 acres and it's, you know, farmed by a couple. And they tend, they tend not want to do farming because it's a hard life. And then because of the scale, it's not, it's not very profitable. They'd rather go work in the city and do an industrial job and come back here to do it on the weekend. So the government faces huge challenge. I mean, this is not a local problem. This is all throughout China. So they try to aggregate land so they can introduce new ways of, you know, much more efficient ways to do it. Um, and then allow these, you know, so we sort of worked on one of those earlier projects where you allow the farmers who is not want to farm anymore but still likes the village life to live in a more compact village and then allow the farm to be aggregated to different levels. You know, you may have very large rice farms, then you have slightly smaller organic farms and introducing new farm technology. And to do all that to increase the yield, to, to enhance mm-hmm. the environment. And uh, the most important is provide the food security that China needs. You were talking about um, quotas because I think there was 2010 or 2011, 
They were very clear, um, what they call the red-headed document, which is a major central government policy that each city are given certain quotas that how each year they can only convert how much farmland into urbanized land. So that's another way of central government controlling, trying to steer the cities to go right direction. So trying to have food production close to the population centers and, right. and have that security, because they're very acutely aware as a food importer, uh, as other people ought to be. Uh, there was rationing of rice in, in uh, Costco not a few years ago. You know, a drought in Australia, China needs lots of rice. It affects everybody right pretty quickly. John Lin, let's talk about f- food security, is whether food ought to be uh, is part of the plan for resilient and adaptable communities. Well, I think that issue is very much on people's mind. I, I don't think people lose sight of that at all. Uh, in, in fact, it's one of the top priorities. And there is a red line in terms of arable land. People will not go under, right? So there's actually absolutely minimum uh, land people are protecting. So that is being strictly enforced. Uh, food security is being a, a sort of long-time concern in China. It's all the centuries, right? And the old way of greeting each other is, you churn them out, right? right. Have, you have you eaten? Yeah. yeah. So that was the number one concern for everyone. So I don't think people lose sight of that. Um, it is true that, that there is a challenge, the tug between uh, urban development and arable land. Uh, one of the things I think we need to think about is why the municipal government are keep expanding the city proper. This is really had to do with the taxation policy. You know, the, for many city government, 50% of the revenue come from sales land to developers. And they don't have a, a good tax base at the moment. So that's a, a sort of a distorting incentive for them to take over more and more arable land and resell them as industrial or commercial. So, you know, I think this is being identified one of the critical issues to solve to develop sustainable cities in China, that we need to change the taxation system or the split between the federal and local tax split so there's enough revenue for the cities to develop in a way that's not damaging to the environment. Um, Hong Kong did that in a very different way. Hong Kong has lots of land. They've artificially restricted the supply, which has driven up prices, created some of the world's uh, wealthiest billionaires. Uh, and it's a little bit of collusion there because the billionaires like that arrangement very well. Thank you very much. Um, but it did restrict supply and, and resulted in very dense development. But is that not an option for the mainland to do it the way Hong Kong did? I think Hong Kong has too, right? Hong Kong's terrain is much more severe than most True. It's very steep, and it's Chinese. Not, a lot of it's not buildable. Right, they're not yeah. buildables. And in a way, it creates a very transit-friendly corridor of develop, high-density development. I think in China, what um, Jiang is talking about is there's not really... I think they started a property tax um, system now. For a long time, there wasn't property tax. So when a piece of land is sold, that's the only one-time revenue that the city government can generate. So the other way to raise the next 50% of their revenue every year is selling more land. But once they have this role in this property taxation system, then it will be better because each property, this each piece of land that's sold can generate more income for the government then you don't have to sell more mm-hmm. land to keep the city going. So I think that's a very key. They do have to continue to expand because there are still 300, 400 million people that wants to move to the city looking for better life and different way of, you know, making your living. Um, so it's just how to do it in a way that is, you know, appropriate addressing all these issues. 
If you're just joining us on the radio, Alan Liu is Director of Urban Design and Planning at the architectural firm of Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill. Our other guest today at Climate One is Zhang Lin, Senior Vice President of the Energy Foundation and Chairman of the China Sustainable Energy Program. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk about cars. Uh, bicycles uh, used to be the icon of mobility in China. If you, th- you think about a Chinese city, you think about all the people riding their bicycles. I rode my bicycle all over Beijing <laughs> and Shanghai as a yeah. youth when I lived there. Uh, and now you look like a f- <laughs> now everyone's <laughs> the irony is you're sitting in cars in in China in major cities and the bike lanes there's not many people riding bikes well you're stuck in this horrendous traffic jam and the car is seen as a as a status symbol it's seen as something a, a, a achievement uh, to have middle class uh, so the chinese uh, Middle-class car is something that's very scary for the world car- carbon equation. Um, and are the cities going to be built around the car inevitably? Ellen? Car is an interesting thing. I think um, we, I've, I've seen a statistic that the, uh, each city's investment in transportation for a long time still now is about 90% in automobile. This is city because most of the mm-hmm. other infrastructure and very little in terms of improving pedestrian infrastructure and bicycle infrastructure. I'm sure it's changing, but it will. But the, uh, but it takes time. The other thing is really it depends on the cities. For instance, like city of Beijing, it's much easier to acquire a car. It's harder to buy a unit of housing to live, so they will buy more cars. Um, they have some taxation system to to sort of limit the supply, but city of Shanghai is the most aggressive one, I think, if I, uh, as far as I know. So to own a car, you need to bid, you know, a price for the license to buy a car, which can be very very high price. So Shanghai actually has lower uh, automobile ownership per capita than other cities, and city of Shenzhen has the highest number of vehicle ownership. So I think. Uh, in terms of per capita. So I think this is a little bit of local policy and how do they control automobile uses. In terms of building the other part, right, we were saying there's, there's a car supply, and then what about parking supply? I think they're still going in the cycle of providing more parking spaces because they suffer so much for inadequate parking spaces, especially in the, in the existing cities. So how do you guide them in the right way that when you're in transit stops, you provide less, and when you're other things that... That's a new thing to introduce. And one piece of that is that Shanghai was an old colonial city with smaller streets. It was built in, it feels very European parts of Shanghai. Uh, and so there's just nowhere to drive around. Beijing, Shenzhen was built, uh, was fields in the 80s until Deng Xiaoping went down there and, and it, it's, they've been built with wide streets around the car. Beijing certainly was built for, uh, tanks and cars and other, yeah, so, um, Jiang Lin. Well, you touch a very essential point in terms of the future of the cities. Uh, I think that it's true, cars, status symbol, you know, that's what people want to own. Uh, but people have actually seen the end of the road in China now. Uh, the difference that you're talking about, old Shanghai and the other cities in China, is one of the critical difference in how you think about the future cities. And I think, you know, one, one of the things we, we like to think about, one of the major problems in China is big blocks and wide streets. You know, Chang'an Avenue in Beijing is one of the worst examples for that. It's very difficult to cross for pedestrian or bicyclists. Right? It's on a Stalinist scale. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we joke about that. It takes 100 
meet a sprinter to cross at a one signal change. And it's not very, it's not very pedestrian friendly, right. sure, yeah. So number one thing I think we want to see is actually create the kind of a space and street network that make it easy for pedestrian and bicyclist to, to have easy access, clean environment to do. To do. I mean, one, one of our things in, in our, one of our major goal in China is actually to revitalizing the bicycle network in China. We've been working with, you know, a dozen cities now. Uh, we're developing new kind of bicycle lanes. So why the bicycle lane in, in Beijing didn't work anymore? Well, one thing was too big. Right? So it's very easy for a car to take over the bike lanes. Right, right. <laughs> so but who's the lane chicken, right? <laughs> so the new kind of bicycle lane got to be designed just for bicycles. The car has no way to get into it, and you have a physical barrier. You can have a different color. You can have make it comfortable for people to ride, you know, in shades instead of under sun without any, you know, protection. So, making those pedestrian and bicycling experience a pleasant one, I think, is the only hope to compete for car ownership. Right? You in car because you want a sheltered experience. If you can make your city in a way that people can walk and bike to work, to access to facilities, and you have a very high-quality transit experience. And people, I think, will have a very easy choice. Otherwise, it's very easy to drive people towards car ownership. But isn't there some cultural resistance? Like, oh, you know, car is fashion, it's modern. You know, oh, my, my grandma, she drives a bike, I want to drive a car, right? Isn't there some real cultural resistance to saying going back to a bike words? I mean, China's a country that's marching forward, industrializing, and going back to a bicycle seems like kind of old school. That's a really interesting point. So every time when we're promoting bicycle riding, we always show this very fashionable person, you know, even helmets, really fashionable outfit, and this is a cool thing to do. Okay. If you show them these old pictures, my grandma's, you know, the yeah. aspiration. Chickens hanging from the bubble, right. handlebars. We have right? to <laughs> understand the aspiration to do better. And the other thing that was interesting is um, I think we do a lot, right? We say transit first and pedestrian first, and if there's congestion, that's better. It takes longer to get there driving, that's better. Make the bicycle faster, make right transit faster and do that. I think in terms of transportation planning, maybe your organization can help is to tell the Chinese that when your city gets certain level of streets, don't worry about cars. Don't Just get a bus and get a bicycle to ride fast and let the cars sit there. Then they can. That's another way to do congestion. <laughs> Price. Let them suffer in the car, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's really a choice. I mean, we find that to make sure that you design city with really true uh, approach of serving the people on the street, you end up with much better urban design. The old city, why is it better? Because it was developed before car was available. So people have to walk, right, have the bike, and using, you know, horse carriages. And it's not designed for cars. And people, when they design modern city, when the cars invented, they imagine this beautiful white boulevard and cars speeding through. And then end, it's a dead end. Right? The more more ring road you built, the more congested it gets in, in, in Beijing. And people start realizing that that's the case. So now people are thinking about what are the alternatives. And I really like to think about the street as a public space. And they're not just for car owners, right? is everyone has a claim on the street or city. So whether you want to use for bicyclists, for buses, or for cars, it's a choice city have to make. And the city have to make the choice based on whether they're serving the resident of the city 
weren't serving the car owners of the city. I think it's a very fundamental mind shift in the approach to urban sort of urban resource management. And there's some class connotations here. I mean, that used to be the cadres, the ruling class, rode, rode around in their black uh, Santanas and, and Volkswagens. The subway was for the peasants, and they have to have to have, move around somewhat. But uh, we get the ruling class goes on. But now uh, the roads are so jammed. Are, are people, are cadres taking the subway? I mean, that would be a real change, right? They either do that or they have police motorcade clearing the road, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> which I think in both ways. It happens in both ways. I think the current administration is saying that they don't want that anymore. They do not want motorcade clearing the traffic for them. He wants to know what's going on. So that's trickled down to different cities. And then the others is, I think, practical sense, you know, we worked on a project in Beijing, these company executives they don't. They either go to work very early, leave late, or they actually ride transit because it's faster that Interesting. way. Uh, tell us briefly about Xintiandi, which is a area in Shanghai that that was you helped redevelop that created this kind of walkable, almost European style village in Shanghai that has this kind of feel that we've been talking about. Um, so Xintiandi is a project that um, was preserving a, a, a few blocks of historical townhouse type development and convert that to um, new modern uses. It was all residential before and converted to um, commercial restaurant food and beverages and all that. That project was very special because um, at that time, uh, historical preservation is only single significant architecture structures, and they are sort of preserved and become a museum. So the idea of preserving a district, maybe they don't have each, you know, each structure is not unique now that way, but as a district, it's very special. So that idea, I think, um, you know, we brought out the idea. We were fortunate enough that the government took a risk to approve project like that, and the developer took the risk to invest in project like that, and it became very successful. So it was a very good demonstration project that, all cities now. There's so many Shintendis that they want to develop in different cities. So that's one of the earliest kind of sustainable approach in terms of preserving historical fabrics in the city. If you're just joining us, we're talking about sustainable development in China. Our guests are Zhang Lin, Senior Vice President at the Energy Foundation, and Ellen Liu with Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill in San Francisco. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, we're going to put the microphone out here and invite your participation for questions and comments about China's urbanism and how China is developing. And uh, while we're doing that and waiting for you to hop up and with your uh, with your question there, um, um, I want to ask about water. We touched on it briefly before. Today is World Water Day, and so we'd be remiss in talking about uh, both the scarcity uh, of water. Earlier we talked about too much water, but China also faces having not enough water. It's a big problem there, and the, the water towers of Asia and the Tibetan Plateau are, are, are draining and melting. So that uh, means that China faces some very serious water. How is that going to affect the way the cities are developed uh, in the future? Ellen Liu? It's um, it's very interesting. Even in regions like Guangzhou, where there are plenty of water, they're not short of water, but you still need to treat water, right, to become portable water. So um, it was very good discussion with the locals how you should be conscious of water usage and recycling water. So you don't have to, you know, one million people that move in town, they had to build how many water treatment facilities to meet their modern needs. So if there are certain... Um, water can be recycled and used for irrigation and other uses, then um, the government don't have to invest, do not have to sell another, I don't know how many hectares of land to build that water treatment plant. 
which was like music to the leadership. But to allow those things to happen, certain regulations and codes have to be changed because there are certain rules about the location of you know water treatment facilities and how the standards of what you can do. The other thing that is challenging for water is water quality. I mean, these I know many cities have clean, clean their water, but it's still a major challenge. Like the city of Guangzhou, um, two years I think for about two two years, the mayor's was he said that he spent about 55 million U.S. dollars a week building the sewer interceptors along all the waterways because they are still a huge part of Guangzhou that do not have sewer system. You know, the newer part, they are all fine and dandy, but the older part. So they had to build the interceptors to, to intercept that and keep the water quality from further deteriorating. So it's $55 million a week. Yeah, it's a monumental task to do that. And the te- yeah, because some of the waters over there are, are yeah horrendously polluted. So both yeah. treating the water as well as getting fresh water. Let's have our audience question. Yes, welcome. Hi. Yes, thank you. I had a couple of questions asked actually. When the redevelopment happened that you were describing, Ellen, I was wondering. You had mentioned it had been a residential area and then was converted to more mixed use and 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 restaurants and shops and things. I was wondering what was done with the people who used to live there and how they were compensated. And then also I was wondering about the cars. I mean, with the pollution the way it is in some of the cities like Beijing, aren't people learning from us and realizing that this isn't the way to go? I mean, is there any chance of cars becoming unfashionable because they're creating so much pollution? So first, relocation of people, a very different... uh, uh, in China, then the lawyer-ridden uh, process in the United States. Tell us about that. So that time, that project was, you know, started about 15 years ago. That time, the policy is if you are living in center of Shanghai, and so they did this uh, survey and knows, you know, who's living there, and they have a unit. So they are given a unit two rings out. So you are in the center of center of Shanghai. You are re- you will be repaid for a unit which is larger than what they have in the city, but two rings out. So that also creates problem because their social network and everything was was inside and they refused to move out that way. Mm. I think the newer policies are much more sensitive now. They will have to negotiate the um, the tenant, you know, the, the residents. Where do they want to move? Do we do I pay you or do you buy a unit? It's getting a little a lot harder to relocate right now. It's quite interesting because I remember when we were doing that project, this is about fifteen years ago, they say Oh, you know, we have to head back to China because the government has decided we're going to build this east-west um, elevator railway through China. I mean, through Shanghai, and there's an intersection. They have to relocate 700 families in 43 days. And I was like, "Gosh, our public notice period hasn't even finished." Yet. <laughs> but you know, I think it's a, a swing. You know, you are learning. There's huge, the demand is huge, but now they're learning from the process, and the system is more flexible. So. It will continue to change. I think it will be closer to what we have. <laughs> yeah, as they get more, as the legal system develops, they have more property rights, more property owners that flex their muscle. Uh, the second piece of that question was also car culture and making cars unfashionable. I I would like to hope that's the way in Singapore. You know, congestion pricing. You can own a vehicle however you want. Um, fancy, you have to pay licensing to buy a vehicle. But the ideal thing, you drive it when there's no traffic. So, you know, if you drive out during um, traffic peak hours, you pay a lot of tax all over. Singapore is a tiny city state, so 
it's meters everywhere. If you drive out during the peak hours, you pay a lot. And then if you drive out during the non-peak hours, you enjoy your car. I think that policy will be very applicable to Chinese cities because they just have so many more people. Jiangmin, any further thoughts on car culture? Well, you know, that's a very interesting question. It's very difficult to say how fast you can turn the culture around. Uh, I think rather than focusing on making car unfashionable, you really think about how do you make the mobility much easier for people. So it's not a, a choice by particular, you know, instruments. People choose what's easy and convenient for them. And you want to make sure those things have the lowest uh, environmental damage get prioritized in that. So one you know, good example in the world is Denmark. You know, bicycle share of the traffic is like 60-something percent, even in winter. Why people do that? It's not for environmental concerns. It's because it's really the fastest way to get around in, in downtown Denmark. So if you design your transit system with that in mind, you know, they just introduced a very fabulous idea, having a bicycle superhighway to bring suburb people to downtown. There's a dedicated superway, superhighway for bicycles, right? Well, you have freeways for cars. Why not for a bicyclist? So there's, you know, a street shot to downtown core and make it very easy. So if you design your, your system uh, in, with that in mind, behavior will change. Uh, one way that behavior changes also, we should acknowledge American uh, complicity in this uh, uh, with cars and other things. Ellen Liu, you, know, you have a story about how uh, planners over there reference Hollywood films as well. Well, that's the way we ought to build our cities and, and the way that uh, that's their aspirational model, right? Right. I mean, I was talking to our uh, Chinese planner friends. There's suburbia. What's wrong? You know, I, we saw in the movie. Why did you? How did you get that idea? The Chinese did not live that way. They were more compact cities. It's not high rise traditional. They say, oh, in the movies, you know, I have beautiful homes, yards. You have nice cars. That's what we want to be. So I think we need to not only preaching to the planners, but go to Hollywood and have them film more in New York. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they saw E.T. with all those, yeah, right? You know? um, and it's true. There are developments outside of Beijing that look like Orange County. Yeah. Uh, let's have our next question. Hi, I'm Emily Peckenham, and I work on a sustainability initiative at the Asia Society. And my question is related to an issue that Ellen brought up about how to make high-density cities livable. I'd be very interested in hearing um, some additional examples of how that could be achieved in China, um, whether it's streetscaping, um, how the architecture is arranged, public space. Um, from both of our panelists, I'd be very interested to hear how do you make high-density cities livable, um, either now or what are some ideas for the future? Very good question, and um, it's very interesting. You know, even most of Chinese cities have very high-density living now. They, their um, FAR is, you know, 3.5 to 7 FAR is floor area ratio. I'm okay. sorry. So the density of development. Um, but some of the house, many of the housing is developed that even though you live very high density, you have to drive to go somewhere. They are huge, you know, super blocks. They are six-acre um, of open space in the middle. When you get out, you can't even find taxi because there's no congregation of people. So they all go down to the basement and drive. So how do you develop in a way that it's very walkable, it's very attractive to be on the on the streets, to mingle, to shop, and to reduce the automobile trip? That's one of the things. And there are many other things like um, 
China developed very fast, so there is a national planning standard. This is what you need to do and how many percentage of open space. And one, but one standard don't fit all. So how do you create variety? So you have larger spaces for congregation or larger activities, and then you have small open spaces that's much more walkable and easier. So there are many, many things. We're working on the best practice books to, to, to just introduce ideas for variety and for livability. I mean, uh, Zhang Lin, yes. That's a great question. We actually develop through our practice and with our partner institutions so-called eight principle for low-carbon livable cities, and the title of which is really planning city for people, and change the orientation of that. The principle actually very simple, right? You, you know, you, you develop a street network that friendly to pedestrian and bicyclist, small street grid instead of super block wide boulevard. You truly create a mixed usage neighborhood. Uh, and you, you develop transit capacity that's matched with the development density. And that's one of the fundamental problems, actually, in most cities we, we see. Even though cities invest in huge amount in transit, oftentimes the land planning is not going together with it because it's run by different agencies. So you could create a massive amount of a transit network, but the land use planning is on the other side. They're not matching. So to make sure that that the land development density matches public transit capacity is one of the huge things you get done. So we actually have a couple of brochures here. If you're interested, we can share one of those principles we, we develop uh, in China. It's been in use in, in dozen, uh, half a dozen cities in China, in, in Kunming, in Chongqing, in Changsha, in, in Zhuhai, etc. So we got actually quite a bit of feedback on how to integrate that design principles. This gets to the question of how do we actually address this massive challenge across China, not just the one and two cities, actually working with thousand cities in that. I think this design principles and how to make them work, actually a very useful tool to, to reach out to people. Let's have our next audience question. Um, after hosting a um, city planner from Shanghai here, I had a chance to uh, um, uh, see her over in Shanghai, and I saw really uh, cool examples of uh, innovative, sustainable uh, urban design with buildings uh, where after you left the uh, apartment, um, your key automatically powered down the AC uh, climate system and the lights, uh, dual plumbing, why use drinkable potable water to flush down your toilets. Great. But then she also uh, told me, I want to show you like a traditional uh, Chinese town. And we went to Wuji, three million. It was like a small town in her uh, view. And we passed one of these subdivisions, and it was actually uh, called Napa, but it looked actually more like uh, um, Orange County. So my question is, how do you, how, how do you get rid of this uh, momentum to appeal to having this kind of white picket uh, suburban lifestyle with a beamer in your garage as of like the dream for the Chinese middle class. It, it's, it's a really interesting question. I in the, earlier on when I first came to this country, I heard at a planning conference talking about you know how we should live our lives. For Asian, and I came away with that you have to respect the locals' aspiration, and uh, you have to work with it. And hopefully, that that's only a very, very maybe less than one percent of the people that will, because they can afford it and they want to do that and allow that to happen. And yet, 
guide majority of the people to fit work with their aspiration because if we work against their aspiration, things won't happen. The national rules, regulations, you can do all that, but the aspiration of certain people who want to do that, you just can't stop them. They're going to do it. They are the influence class. But we are just hoping to minimize that to as small as possible. So most of the people, the impact that we have, are much uh, in, the, in the sort of preferred direction. <laughs> There have been attempts to go to some eco cities. Uh, Huang Min is, is an entrepreneur that has these, uh, tried to market these uh, uh, eco cities where these valleys are, are you know, where buying green is very much part of the sales proposition with uh, solar, uh, thermal, heating water with the sun, that sort of thing. Is that taking off at all, or is that just sort of a, a, a niche among uh, the, the uh, middle class or the elite there that can afford and is even interested in that kind of living and those kind of values? Maybe I'll do that. We have a developer that we work with for a long time. Um, they do find that value. So, you know, they, they have two development. That is LEED uh, and the so LEED for um, neighborhood development and goal level certification. So they do find the attractiveness, besides their own professional passion to do sustainable design, there is market value to do green. Um, it's just the beginning, and we hope it will spread. John Lee? Well, the, the <coughs> definitely... If it shoots of a green consumerism, in the real estate market, it's true, too. We met with a few leading developers recently in Beijing um, over dinner. They're marketing their, their product as a premier product, but also follow the green building design. In fact, you know, some of the leading uh, developers, Wang Ke, Wang Chong, uh, built all their residential buildings following the green building guidelines. In fact, they have developed their own internal green building construction guidelines on top of the government guideline to make sure 100% of their apartments are green, meet a green building requirement. Is they see that as differentiator from their, you know, from the rest of com, com, competition. So they can sell them at the premier, uh, premium. Uh, the eco-city is much more complex uh, uh, evolution and process. There are a lot of people talking about eco-cities. But I think we need the field need to come together to a common understanding what is an eco-city, right? But we benchmark, you can measure yourself. Otherwise, you know, it's very unclear what it is. People can say, I did this one thing, it's eco-city. And there have been some very uh, high-profile, prominent disappointments. Bill McDonough and others were going to build some big eco-cities, and they didn't actually come to fruition in China, right? Any yeah. lessons there to be learned about why those things didn't take off? I Hello, think... The, to build an eco-city, even a, a green building takes a lot of coordination, right? It's not only the design, but the construction, the material supply, and all that. So it's like the whole industry needs to go through some revolution, transformational change to allow an eco-city to be built. So I think it's good that there was aspiration, and then there's some that's getting good, getting there, uh, even though everything happens in China a lot faster than we do, but still needs a little more time than just couple of years. So I am um, optimistic that something will be built, maybe not as fast. <laughs> Eco-cities. And let's, let's uh, oh, yes, next audience question. Uh, yes, uh, my question was about, about the bike culture and how the cars have taken over a lot more. Um, in Minneapolis, they have a sort of green highway where it's just set aside for people running, biking, even skateboards, whatever. So, and here we have the gasoline tax, which helps pay for the roadways. Is there a way to try to help incentivize people to ride their bikes more again? Um, maybe through, obviously, the, you know, separating it from the regular traffic, but also maybe some kind of tax, you know, where, like, you would 
get a license and it would kind of go toward the bike culture or if anyone could do that china yeah could tax what they want yeah <laughs> you think right <laughs> uh it's a, it's a great question i think it's really about getting the incentive right and we're actually building some the the greenway systems as you described in some of the new city we work with so it would be entire system of of pa- uh, pathways just dedicated for non-motorized transit, right? So be biking, walking, running, etc. And so, but you have to develop the infrastructure, so people have a choice. Otherwise, there's no choice. And so the taxation issue, I, I can't really count, you know, comment on that particular whether the bicycling, you know, is going to receive the particular subsidy. But I think the infrastructure design, you know, has that kind of locking effect. If you don't design, if you design a street only for cars. Of course, people are going to go for cars. If you design, there's choice for people. Think about other ways. I think there's a very different, uh, very different possibility. This is true in buildings. I think, uh, in many ways, the old lifestyle in China is very low energy use, low carbon emitting. Right? The regular household usage are truly one tenth of usage we have here. But if we're not careful, as the building system are get transformed from the west to China. You potentially could have a locking effect of this 24-hour AC automatic control, right? It's very high comfort, high technology, mm-hmm. but you still end up, you know, five times more usage than traditional behavior. So there's a lot of actually technology choices that we need to be careful as we as China develops, so they can choose the way that preserve the, their local practice and use the technology that's appropriate. So the whole scale move. move from the Western model to China, suddenly it's, it's very problematic. Let's just close by asking one thing that you think that the U.S. could learn from China. China is often perceived as a clean tech, clean energy leader, if not an innovator. What are some lessons that we might learn from the other side of the ocean that they're doing? We could be applied here. I think the um, higher density living, especially you know, like our new generation of people who wants to, younger people who wants to live in cities. San Francisco, a perfect example. So they, China, especially these last 20 years, has developed so many high-density environment comparing to ours. So we have a lot of lessons that we can also learn from. You know, I mean, we can look into what um, they have learned and so that we don't have to make that same mistake again. Does that mean our in-laws have to move, move in with us? <laughs> That would be another idea. <laughs> but I want to put in another point. I think we American planners has huge responsibility too because the rest of the world are still looking to us to bring the best practices there for whatever reason. So we need to be responsible uh, to look into it. You know, um, 15 years ago, we have Chinese developer coming in and say, I just want to see what office building is like, whatever it's like. What they have been doing the last few years, they want to see what is the next generation. What should I be doing now that I've got my modern offices? What are you doing that is right? So, you know, things like sustainable green buildings, a lot of good practices are things that they're going to take it back to do in China. So we have that responsibility to continue to press for the to best practices so that we can share that with the, with the rest of the world with a little sensitivity for local culture and aspirations. John Lee, quick last word. I think we can learn, as Alan mentioned, that the high density and livability are not in contradiction. In fact, you can find many ways of living well and living together. The second part I think we can really learn from China is their approach to learning. One of the most remarkable things I think happened in China in the last 30 years is not just how, how fast they move from one to another. It's actually how open they are in learning about new ideas. 
So they're always looking at what's the best around the world and try to adapt to their local practices. And sometimes we lose that mentality to, look, to learn from other people and to, 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 to learn in practice, not just learning by in itself. So I think the greatest learning in China is actually by doing it. So as they develop the cities, they're trying different solutions, they're making, trying to make it work. Sometimes it doesn't work, but you learn from that. I think we, we need to retain that capacity in this country as well. And we'll have to end it there. Our thanks to Zhang Lin, Senior Vice President at the Energy Foundation and Chairman of the China Sustainable Energy Program, and Ellen Liu, Director of Urban Design and Planning at the architectural firm of Skidmore, Owings & Merrill. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for coming and listening to Climate One today.